0: Come to Morricone Island
1: It's Devin' Eleven's show For your film
0: and TV soundtracks It's the number one place to go From old world to new
1: You're listening to Morricone Island on WFMU. I'm your host, Devin E. Levins, here every Tuesday from 8 to 9 p.m. playing the soundtrack hits, and this week is no exception. We have joining us a extra, extra, extra special guest, legendary musician, composer, conductor, actor, poet, uh, writer, uh, David Amram, still busy as ever at the uh, age of 91, um, got a start many, many years ago as Leonard Bernstein's chosen first composer in residence for the New York Philharmonic, also a composer for jazz, funk, classical symphonies, concertos, Arthur Miller plays, uh, Broadway plays, uh, goes on and on. Even uh, the original Joe Papp Shakespeare in the Park productions back in the day. And uh, we, of course, we're going to do our best to cover a lot of that, but most topically for his Incredible work in uh, the 60s primarily for uh, Elliot Kazan's Splendor in the Grass and the Arrangement back in 1969. And then, of course, John Frankenheimer's mentoring Candidate and Young Savage's uh, two great New York films have New York moments in them. And uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank
0: you for the <laughs> glowing introduction and to all your listeners. All blessings to you. Listen to the radio. And then when you turn it off, Be creative yourselves.
1: (laughs) Yes. I mean, just right off the bat, uh, when I was in touch with you originally back in May, you were in the middle of what's, you were in Kansas, and then you were in uh, New England, and you were kind of back in New York, and you you were busy as ever. And then right now, getting back in touch with you, your September just ramps right back up you have this festival, the the New York Chamber Music Festival coming up, and then you're going to be doing Farm Aid for the thirty first time, and then uh, you're going out to the Kurt Vonnegut uh, Centennial in Indianapolis. It's like it's nonstop. You're uh, living by your own words for sure.
0: Well, <laughs> unfortunate also. There's something called the the Village Trip. This is their fifth year because the, the year before last they got COVIDed out. And I'm I'm what they call the artist emeritus, because I was the artist in residence the first year. And then if you're old enough, you become an emeritus if if you're not buried. So I'm very... But my main thing is that I'm trying to be sort of a cheerleader to all the young painters, poets, musicians, actors, and parents who want to bring their kids to something that isn't total putrescence of which there is an enormous amount already, so we don't have to deal with that. But there's all these wonderful actors and poets and musicians and writers and dancers and sculptors and bartenders and waitresses who all have a wonderful philosophy and a wonderful energy. That's kind of what has kept me going all my life, by hanging out with those who know more than me, who are aware. And the festival this year, they're doing everything through the village where I'm commissioned to write a new piece setting Kerouac's, part of Kerouac's wonderful section from the book The Lonesome Traveler, a section called Ah, Take Me Back to the Village. And I said, wow, that's the one to use. And I just rehearsed with two classical guitar players. They don't use capos and they don't use amps and a wonderful classical singer. And it also has jazz and all the different, Latin music, all the wonderful things that are part of New York City. In the piece, written down on paper, and I just went to the rehearsal yesterday, a group called Vox M, and with an apostrophe plus, and then I'm doing a program called Classical Jack the next night, and then I'm doing a wonderful thing at Joe's Pub with the great Bobby Sanabria, showing jazz and Afro-Cuban music of the 50s and how important that is today and how that relates to Kerouac and all of us. And then I'm also doing a program honoring Phil Oakes, doing a whole bunch of stuff, and then I zoom off to Farm Aid, and then I go to Indianapolis. But the only reason I mention that is if younger folks are listening... You can do something too, and if your grandparents are listening, hang out with your grandchildren, which I do with my grandson, and also try to enjoy intergenerational activity, not to be a great liberal, but just to be a human being, because we could all learn from each other. My eight-and-a-half-year-old grandson, man, he's not interested in anything I know about, so I have to tune into him to see where he's coming from and as they say in the sopranos forget about it it's very difficult but beautiful and then when you find a way of communicating suddenly all these amazing things come out because you're not just some stranger and I think the old people like myself have something to offer because if nothing else we can tell people what not to do or how not to do it if we screwed up 120 times till we found out a better way of doing it. So that's more, more the Solomon esque wisdom of old age, of having messed up yourself, figuring out how you could avoid doing that. And secondly, a lot of the blessings that were bestowed upon us by our elders, we can try and pass that stuff on too. So it makes life more beautiful than ever and keeps you going. And someone said, well, Man how do you get that energy you're going to be 92 this November and I said very simply desperation is very stimulating <laughs>
1: <laughs> words to live by yes <laughs> also I mean too you you know I have found that you can also learn from even if you're someone's coming to you to teach them something you learn from watching somebody just Pick something up for the first time. You can learn from the m- mistakes and the reasons why they choose to do one thing over another. And um, you know, it's it's always kind of a learning process. It's like a two-way street, like you said.
0: Absolutely, it's what they call on-the-job training, and life is on-the-job training. If you keep your mind and your heart open, and you can accept suggestions, I wouldn't say. Vicious criticism, but you can accept constructive suggestions from those who know more than you. And there's a whole bunch of people out there every day you can meet who not only can teach you a lesson, but you can learn something about anything because they know more about it than you do. And that's a good thing. It's interpreted in New York society as being a weakness. If you're able to say hello without a can opener and act friendly. People think, well, what, what does you, do you want from that? He's trying to get over on I me. Mean, there's a weakling. He must be sick. I understand that. But above and beyond that, there's a thing called civilization. And a lot of people in the most unlikely places, according to our peer culture, are extremely civilized. And I mention that because I know you're working on, you do a show about films, and I never dreamed I would be writing music for films. I enjoy doing it, and I explained when finally uh, someone put out a five-CD set of all the film music I'd done. I said, I'm not a film composer. I'm a composer who occasionally writes for films, and when I do, I try to do as with as much loving care as when I write a concerto, a symphony, an opera, or when I'm playing with Willie Nelson, just going, mm, bach, on my dombeck and playing a little penny whistle solo. I'd try it with him to fit in to his world. And you learn how to be a accompanist and a side man by being a leader, so to speak. And when I did The Manchurian Candidate, which was a pretty far out movie, especially in 1962, John Frankenheimer said to me the golden words. He said, David, do what you feel. My only advice is, number one, it's not a Chinese war movie. (laughs) Number two, the film will tell you what to do. And when I worked for Shakespeare in the Park, I watched those great actors. Oh, man, were they good. And Shakespeare's great words. You couldn't help but write some good music because they, they were telling you what it was and what to do. And that's true with just about anything. You have to almost have the sense of doing it on one line where you're sitting there in an empty room saying, man, what am I going to do now? How do I do that? And when I played one chord 37 times, the wonderful person I was with at the time said, man, you were playing that same chord for an hour. I said, well, I want to make sure I get it right. And sometimes to get it right, You have to turn off all your so-called education, your toolbox of what you learn. You forget about that stuff. And you just do it by feeling of which of those 37 choices feels like it's saying something. And that's self-editing. And Jack Kerouac, of all people, did that in his head. I knew him and hung out with him and played with him. By the time he wrote it down on paper, he'd already figured most of it out. And Mozart did that when he wrote the symphonies, he wasn't a speed calligrapher. He wrote what he already had figured out and put together when he was doing it. And most of the writers, like Cervantes, I mean, we read Don Quixote, who could imagine hanging out with a washed up nobleman <laughs> Was jousting with windmills, and his friend Sancho Panza, who, who ate cloves of garlic, was Dr. Funkenstein of the of the two, duo. Who could imagine, in today's world, anybody would read that book. But man, it's saying something, and it's telling a great story. And when people see the Lascaux cave paintings 25,000 years ago, pay all that money to go over to southern France, and then pay to go into the caves, no one's asked for a refund that we know of, because that stuff is still hip. And as John Keats, the greatest jazz poet of the 19th century, said, a thing of beauty is a joy forever. And that, that's true. We do have standards, and you could even use those standards if you decide to write music for a film, and there are film composers who have done that. Nino Rota, my goodness, is that good music. And the music for The Godfather, incredible. And John Corigliano's music that he did for the violin, I forget the name of it, but amazingly good music. And the song, the violin music that John Williams wrote for Schindler's List, that's my favorite thing that he ever wrote that i've heard just a great piece of music without the film i only mention because whatever you're doing or when i was brought up on a farm we were taught to try to make a straight line as much as possible when you're when you're putting in the corn and soybeans especially corn because you wanted to cultivate around it and when you're milking the cow not to put water in the pail to make it weigh enough and save time but to do a good job And the concept of doing a good job and hard work is completely out of the picture. Generally speaking, when we go to a career counselor, and if you mention that, they'll look like they want to throw up. (laughs) And so will a lot of employers and other people. But we have to remember, that's their prerogative in their position to act that way. But that's on them. It ain't on you so we all have to do better than is expected do really great work and hope for the best because there's no guarantee (laughs) but it makes you feel better and then you're doing what we're all put here to do and you have a better life because you're not ashamed and disgusted cynical mad and angry at everybody because some other ripoff artist has ripped off more than you have done that's an overcrowded field in a non-growth industry So all of us have to get it together, listen to WFMU, try to listen to your show and think for themselves, how can we do better and what can we do for ourselves and our family and our friends or whatever kind of work we do and put some effort into that just for our own satisfaction and mental, spiritual survival to do a good job.
1: When you were handed uh, Manchurian Candidate, which you just mentioned, from John Frankenheimer, was it kind of a blank canvas? Was there was it was it finalized as far as the cut and everything? And then you were kind of left at your own devices, or
0: it was kind of like a gigantic crossword puzzle with half of the pieces lying around <laughs> in different places. And I'd read the script, which was amazing, and the book, which was amazing. And when they, I was playing at a place called the Montecito Hotel, where, where the New York actors would go mostly, so that they could talk about playing Chekhov and Shakespeare in the park when they were doing Wagon Train, and they sit around the swimming pool reading the New York Times, talking about Strindberg and <laughs> and and Patty Chayefsky's work and Arthur Miller's work, and and never mentioning that they were working on on you know whatever show they were doing, so they could afford to go back to to New York City and be a great artiste for a year you know, looking for a gig or have, playing in some fantastic masterpiece and and hardly being able to pay the rent. So I was it, and it was a wonderful place because all the people there were so devoted to acting and the, and the theater. And they were there and they were doing a good job in the films, but they weren't trying to be movie stars. They were just there glad to get a gig and get paid, do better than is expected and go home. So I was sitting in my little room and they kept sending me things of different parts of the film suddenly i would say oh and then it would go black and they'd have a black thing saying this will be done and everything was out of sequence it was amazing fortunately i had read the script so the one thing was that famous scene when it looks like a they're having a savannah tea party with the women all dressed up with their gloves and their beautiful outfits and suddenly they dissolve into these north korean and 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 chinese Guards and generals and prison guards and a bunch of American soldiers stoned out on psychotropic drugs, being brainwashed, and they had that famous scene where they panned for about two minutes, and I looked at it. And I said, "Oh my God, man! What? This is an outtake. Why did they send that to me?" Then the phone rings. And John Frankenheimer said, "Did you just get that scene?" I said, "Yes." He said, "How did it make you feel?" And I said, "Well, frankly, man, you know, <laughs> I thought I was going nuts." I said, it really shook me up. I thought, boy, that whoever did that's like, what's well, crazy. Is, is that going to be in the movie? He said, of course. He said, that's the idea. We want to show the audience what it's like to have psychotropic drugs and be in that world to, and be brainwashed to the extent that you would kill your best friend when you're told to and act as if nothing was happening. I said, wow. And then he said... And you can help that scene by figuring out some kind of music that will make it even more that way. So I used, had the idea, which I never did, of using a harpsichord and three piccolos playing what sounded like Arnold Schoenberg's latest greatest outtakes. And I tried to take the most hideous, wrong notes I could possibly assemble, and, and playing jazz and folk music and loving Bach and Vivaldi and Bartok and Stravinsky, and so many other people, I was always looking for what they called jazz then, the choice notes, the beautiful notes, the things that felt harmonious, regardless of what it was, meant something. I said, forget about that. This is a scene of deranged, stoned out, murderous. So I took everything as hideous as I could, and I put sort of a a Viennese waltz on <laughs> that I wrote on top of that being accompanied by these dreadful notes. Almost every reviewer says that that was marvelous music by the avant-garde composer. I was so derriere guard. I was back in the Elizabethan times writing music for Shakespeare in the Park. So knowing what I thought were right, beautiful notes, I was able to make it truly hideous. And it worked for that scene. The hard part was writing the principal theme, which was difficult because I didn't want to make it sound like 427 other pieces that had already been written and using counterpoint and trying to make it into a real piece of music. That was tough. I spent days working on that. It's, it's interesting because the thing that I was able to do so easily was figuring I'm going to do everything I can And make it as wrong as possible and i don't say that to disparage other composers or other other films but there is a thing called melody harmony and counterpoint and when you listen to the birth of the cool and you hear those magnificent voicings and the jazz harmonies and you listen to the bach Brandenburg concertos you listen to any music in the world or you listen to the great players who followed charlie parker and bird uh, and dizzy who are my heroes who always, and every single person who played with them, just always had a magnificent choice of notes. There, when you heard Ornette Coleman and and work of John Coltrane, they were moving that in a different direction, but when you really listen carefully, you feel that sense of balance and organization and expressiveness and telling a story. You can't prove that And if you sit down and have a discussion in some panel, someone will say, what is beauty? And then you're sunk. Because that's the great unknown. That's stuff like looking out and seeing the beautiful trees and the sky and nature. The Native American folks, mostly regardless of thousands of different nations, which we call tribes, which they call nations or cultures, all have in common that the great creator, whoever he, she, they be, Whatever that thing we don't understand is, it's a. All of those things are a gift. We're gifted with that when those trees blossom, and when the, when that rain falls, and when you when you see these extraordinary things in the sky, and life itself and birth, all those things, man. There's no way to explain that. That's the great unknown, and music is the same way. There's there, essentially you're dealing with something that's bigger than all of us that we don't understand. But if it's saying something, it does say something, and people have their hearts touched by that. And then you can bring the brain in to function in a different way, not just to analyze it so you can subdivide it and franchise it, but just to appreciate it and say, wow, how about that? you hear a Beethoven Ninth Symphony, you can't explain. Yeah. But man, is that something? And there are standards in art, in music. When you hear Charlie Parker or Monk play, as I was blessed to do when I was a young person and knowing them, or I worked with Jack Kerouac, and he was just rapping away. There was a beauty side. They were in touch with a certain element, and and that came through them, and they gifted us with what they received as a gift and never acted as if they were superior geniuses and we were just a bunch of lowlifes there wasn't an egomaniac type trip there's enough of that stuff in the culture we don't need any more of that and with all due respect to people who do act that way that's because they never were around anybody who told them you gotta cool that stuff out and get into what it's really about. Sonny Stitt, the magnificent alto player, he could play in all 12 keys. He had people sit in with him like myself who were stumbling and fumbling. And he was nice. If you saw you were trying hard, you could say please and thank you and, and be respectful. But I remember some guy came up was, was telling him how great he was, they were and everything. He listened very patiently. He said, man, you must be a, a bad cat. Let's play Cherokee at, at, this, at this time." Uh-oh. And he said, and we'll play it in B major. Because he could do that on the sax. He could play it all 12 keys. He was like terrifying, you know, technician, in addition to being so creative. So naturally, the person who, I forget, I, have, I can't remember who it was, but Mr. Egomaniac was demolished. So Sonny said to him very graciously, well, look, the next time you come to sit in with us and you're invited, Leave your attitude at home. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah.
0: So those are just little lessons I learned because I would know better than the worst offender. I was brought up in this culture too. You know, if the highest level was to get out there, be a swine, rip everybody off, get to the top, and then you could dump on everybody, terrorize them, and and kick them down in their grovelling to prove you're a real he man and a successful person. However, I was fortunate enough to find that there was a different way of approaching all that stuff and that there were no shortcuts. And the other answer was not the other side of the coin, which is being a wineologist and a blameologist and saying everything sucks and the only thing you can do is, as they say in the Sopranos, whatever, but rather just to work hard and be a lifetime student hang out with those who know more than you and share what little blessings come your way with others and you have a much more fun life. And I honestly believe that's why my kids are so great. I tried to get them to learn to say please and thank you <laughs> and brush their teeth. But other than that, they were out there on their own and that I was too and that everyone else is and we're all just working, trying to survive. And as since they're really good musicians, That as artists, you're not determined by what you have to do to pay your rent. And in our society, what you deserve and what you get have nothing to do with one another. But no one forced you to want to be creative or be a good athlete or be a good astronaut or a good musician or a good actor, poet, whatever. If you choose that or you feel that you were chosen for that, well, then you just go out and spend your life trying to do it. And hope for the best.
1: you've notoriously have kind of walked many different fields, you know, like from the classical world, seamlessly into the jazz world, into the folk world, you know, the world music. I don't know if that's the proper world, but music from from different countries and different cultures. and um and you've been able to do that. Is that more because, you've just been open to like whatever that next opportunity is rather than creating these make-believe boundaries that people do. Like, I can't do that. I'm a classical guy. Or I can't yeah. do that. I don't know the first thing about singing or playing this yeah. odd instrument.
0: Well, I, I didn't know the first thing about anything. <laughs> and I realized that at an early age, when I was brought up on a farm. I was nine years old. And my father said, "Well, what do you want to do when you grow up? I had my seven acres. I was able to grow my own cornfield, and then make half of it into a soybean field, and plow those under to get more nitrogen for all that good stuff. You know, I said, "Well, Daddy, I want to be a farmer like you." He said, "No." He said, "I have to do other work in order to support my farming habit." He said, "160 acres. This is 1939. Is already not enough." My brother and I—that was my uncle David worked for four years nonstop and made about $100 after we went down. They said, it's hard work. I love it, but you can't make a living doing that. He said, what else do you want to do? I said, well, I'd like to be a classical composer and a jazz musician. And he said, that's worse. So I, had, I was in the position that you mentioned of... What do I do? You know, being thrown off the ship and it goes off without you. What is there, a log I can hang on to? What do I do? So the sink or swim survivalist thing is a good thing. So when I would go someplace in my travels and I would hear some fantastic music that just got to me and touched my heart, whatever it was, whoever was doing it, wherever, however, I'd say, man, I like the... I'd like to know more about that. So I've stumbled and fumbled my way into all the things that I'm, I'm presumably supposed to. So now that after, not be, after all these years, not, that that's become more fashionable, pardon the expression, suddenly I've received critical praise as being a pioneer of world music. I said, well, when I worked for Shakespeare in the park, the Shakespeare's plays, every one, Macbeth was a Scottish nobleman, and, and he, he wasn't from England, as Shakespeare was. Hamlet was from Denmark. Attila was a moor. Julius Caesar was from antiquity. I said all the plays he wrote about were from, because that London was a seaport town, and all those stories and myths. When people in New Orleans, like Dr. John, talked about his left hand being the rumba, That's what he told me in 1978 when we were at the Philly Festival. He learned that stuff from all the Cuban guys who would come over on the ships 90 miles away. And he decided he would take some of that and use that in his left hand for what he was playing. And Dizzy, when I met him in 1951, spent the whole night telling me about Pan-African music of all the different places. People from Africa, when they took their journeys, would go to different places, what they would leave and what they would take from what they had acquired to the next place. And so much of of music reflects that kind of nomadic existence and heritage or heritages in the plural. So there's, there's so many different kinds of beautiful things, and the principal thing when you're learning new music is the rhythm to find out where the one is. When Dizzy Gillespie stand gets Earl Hines and my, I was lucky enough to be invited at the last minute, went to, as the first North Americans to ever go to Cuba since the Revolution. At the very end, we were playing with Arturo Sandoval, Paquito de Rivera, Los Papinas, and all the other people who were living there still. And they weren't before Paquito and, and Arturo were able to come here and you know come on this side. There was no sides. We were just there playing music together. Suddenly... They were have, having what they call huataca, which is like a big expression for, let's all jam, or descarga, they would say in Puerto Rico. But they were having this big jam, sort of huataca type, everybody just playing at the end. Man, those guys were playing, and we didn't have any idea where the w- one was because we wanted to come in, but we had, everything was great, and they knew what they were doing. Dizzy finally said, mis amigos dando es uno por favor baby where is the one my friend Mm -hmm. so uh, 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 which is the rumba clave which is one two one two and right away we bam we knew where he was clapping the clave then when of Burké came to Lincoln Center and we were invited, those of us who'd been there were invited to play with the Cubans when they visited here. We watched some of these old guys and gals who'd been playing, doing that music all their life. And at one point she turned around and clapped a clove because they got lost. Mm. I said, well, thank heavens, that music is so complicated. And then when I played with Los Muñequitos de Matanzas, when I was, I was after forty years, I got a call back from the, from the, jazz festival down there, and it was such a thrill to see the people still alive. And when I went to Matanzas and played with Los Muñequitos de Matanzas, they were doing some stuff, and I said, well, I knew the four components of the Co. and uh, boy, they were doing something else because those four things, which is one. Two and one, oom ba oom ba oom boom, oom ba oom, I knew just where that came in, and the, got it, got it, got, it, got it, got it, I knew that one, chikatikatiti, chikatiti, chak chak chak, chikatikatiti, chikatiti, chak chak chak. Those are the four things. That all fit together because they've been doing that for a few thousand years from African music that came over here long time ago but they weren't doing any of that because that was built in they were doing some other stuff on top of that because they all knew so they knew where they were but man i was lost again and then finally they said talk david talk on the flauta you know played davy played the flute so i went and i just a kind of spirit told me what to do i just turned off all the brain power because i figured well whatever it is i just go with it but it's always good to be thrown into that cold shower and have the temperature w- where you're suddenly it's not cold anymore you're welcomed as someone that doesn't know anything to be part of it and they were so gracious and so terrific and then big international stars that they are they all went home on their bicycles all <laughs> right, right, right. Whole, whole different scene than our fake desire to be 18th century English or European noble people (laughs) and be kings and queens and have everybody groveling and slobbering all over us and assuming that's the way you have to behave or that's who you have to become. You know, they were just as much in tune with the little kids when they were playing out on the street for two hours before their concert. And most of the great musicians that I met in all genres have that because they realize that they're part of something that's bigger than us, and they're, wouldn't say servants, they're fans and appreciators of music and art, and those who create that, and the cultures that created that. So once you see that, then you have a a limitless life of learning, and a little bit that people nice enough to show you, you pass that on to other people, And the ones who are nice enough to show it to you generally do that because they figure, well, that guy or that gal is enthusiastic. That's how they learned it themselves, by saying, please, can you show me that? Where's the one, where's the beginning scale? Please, thank you, please, please, thank you. Those two magic words mean a whole lot in any place you go. Being Mr. or Ms. Big, Casting the pearl before the the swine or going slumming is not appreciated by anybody.
1: Right. Your uh, just kind of amazing double solo album from the early 70s, No More Walls, sort of ties into that. Um, And I don't know if I've heard anything like that, that just, you know, nowadays maybe it's not that uncommon for a musical group or an artist to kind of jump genres on Oh, I'm or, sorry. Oh, I was just saying on a recording. And this but this record, it's really takes you around the world, <laughs> you know.
0: Well my hope is that that I was showing that it's not fusion, God help us. Yeah. Fusion is when they were playing they stopped playing plain songs of bong, bong, bling, 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 and everything was in parallel fifths. Just suddenly, like when you play chopsticks, your fingers are going in two different directions. So that's not fusion. because fusion is every kind of music, including chopsticks up up to the latest piece and anything, is different things happening at the same time, each one of which enhances the other part that's happening. And, and that's all the music made in the world comes from that, and it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it tells, comes kind of story and paints some kind of picture, even if it's a different story and a different picture for every listener. And it's saying something. Now, you can't prove that intellectually, because then you're stuck with, what is beauty! And then you get four angry uh, authorities who bring out their bottle of formaldehyde and try to give you a drop of non-wisdom in terms of what someone else wrote that never learned to sing and dance but basically it's just some simple stuff that we don't understand but it's there whatever it is And, and i think the extraordinary thing is that music has not only survived but now with youtube a whole new generation now for the first time in history has a choice and an option of wading through the interminable mounds of sleaze, which has always been dumped upon us, and they can see and hear and re-see and rehear by playing it over again some of the baddest cats and kitties that ever existed in the world doing their music from Bulgaria and from Ireland and from all over and Asia and Africa and the USA all over the world. When I played Native American music with Floyd Riddicko Westerman, and I told him about the Porcupine Singers, he said, "Man, we love them." You, I would tell people that say, "What well, are they, porcupines?" I said, "No, that's the name of the group." You can go on YouTube and hear them. You can hear Arnett Cobb, Arnett Cobb, excuse me, playing Deep Purple, and get a whole jazz lesson on how to play a ballad. You can hear some of the most extraordinary composers, electronic music, cooking, sports, anything, and see how to do it and look at it over and over and over again and then turn off the TV and go out and do something because you realize there's some terrific people out there already and you're, and it's not something that's no longer relevant. Those who say it's relevant and would call something crossover or, or crossover and fusion, that's the other thing. It's saying is a crossover well, if you're in the land of beauty, which we are, if you pay attention to look outside or or even feel anything other than your own problems, that and you cross a bridge, like when you're in Memphis and you're going to Mississippi and you cross that bridge, you're not going to a different planet. You're seeing where the old Beale Street, those things that still come through the sidewalk from 80 years ago that came from right across that river in the in the delta but you're still in the land of beauty you're just you're only crossing over a bridge to another part of that land of beauty so in music there's nothing to cross over to because you're already there right that's the same thing with film i mean that's one of the things i loved about working for films was that you could see the actors over and over and over again and then they would change one little scene four minutes away or four minutes before and that would change the whole picture it was really something and how they the filmmakers were able to to shoot something completely out of sequence and still have it make sense and I, i i enjoyed that in terms of composing not just for films but when you're composing period of structure and timing and subtleties and and returning ideas. That filmmaking is an art too, and scoring for films is an art. And the fact that it may be controlled by people who are not interested in that and, and, and think in staggering, colossal, mega, mega terms is fine, but the number of filmmakers, including people you could take the iPhone and make their own film the whole door is opened up now for a lot of terrific stuff and it doesn't only have to be what they would call a garde or whatever is considered to be trendy but it could be anything including something very beautiful and simple it doesn't matter what it is it's how you do it and the younger filmmakers now can find all these terrific musicians who play so beautifully and are working in a dry-cleaning store and would love to have some example of what they've studied and they can compose the film score just watching the film and following what John Frankenheimer told me the film will tell you what to do.
1: Right, where you started. What was that bridge that got you from more of a performer and a composer and arranger to the film world? Was it, I assume it was those, those two shorts you did in the late 50s, Pull My Daisy and Echo of an Era? It
0: was a film about the 3rd Avenue L, and that was just another fluke because they couldn't find someone to do it for practically nothing. And I got Cecil Taylor. That was the first score he ever did. First time he'd ever been in a recording studio, 1956. George Barrow, who played by jazz group. And I got some wonderful classical players as well, and we had music that sounded almost like Renaissance music or classical music, and then music that kind of felt like New York in the 30s and 40s. And it was really fun to work on it. And it was only because Terry Southern had heard this one little tune that I wrote called Les Oiseaux de Montparnasse, the birds of Montparnasse, where we would sit around and hear all the birds chirping. I wrote a little piece, a little jazz piece. And he liked it so much, he sent it to Alavaki, who was the film editor and a friend of al said look i gotta get a score but i don't have any money so anyway i just they fumbled and stumbled and got into doing it and it really came out nicely then that was the same month i met Woody guthrie on the lower east side where i lived and and then 50 years later wrote a symphony commissioned by his children who, who weren't even born then i guess and and also, met Joe Papp, who was hoped he could have Shakespeare in the park someday, but the, that hadn't happened. He was doing these pro- programs on the Lower East Side. And, and all these people bumped into them. And in Joe Papp's case, he couldn't, the person he wanted to do the music, Betty Lou Fitch, a wonderful pianist and a great lady, didn't write music. She just did it by ear, which is Fine. You know, she was terrific. She played for Mary Anthony and make up stuff for an hour. She was amazing. But she said, David, I can't. They want fanfares and little marshes. And I said, I don't know how to do that stuff. You went to music school. Can you can you get some guys together to do that? I said, sure. So I just stumbled and fumbled into that. I had no plan, but I, I just felt that'd be a great thing to do. With Woody, I just f- enjoyed meeting him so much. I said, man, I got to pay more attention to this music. And the same thing happened with just about everything that I've done. When I worked for Hal Freeman for this little teeny film that he did, I never dreamed that I'd be doing music for Hollywood movies someday. And the reason I got to do those was because John Frankenheimer was looking for someone to do music for Turn of the Screw, a television program by Henry James. And being in 19th century, he wanted his music sounded like it was from the 19th century, not from... Al Hackavision's drawer of five music cues with diminished seventh chords that were written by, or you know, they actually wanted some real music. And I just was lucky enough to get to where, and he liked it and kept asking me to do different things. And against the wishes of the producers, hired me to do the music for the Young Savages. And of course, going to Manhattan school and playing with Latin groups, I knew that neighborhood where it took place. And I was real proud of what i was able to do and for splendor in the grass ilia kazan went out of his way after i did jb and i was like the 25th choice um uh, like my stuff so much that he convinced warner brothers to let an unknown person i remember i met jack warner and he said "Wow, well, you never did nothing he said and then he turned to kazan he said that Leonard bernstein he never did nothing either to he never he was nobody till he did work did that Wonder what are from with you. So then he turned to me and he said, And who's today, who's greater than Leonard Bernstein? And being a smart ass of 29, I said, Beethoven. And I thought he <laughs> going to punch me out. But then his handlers, who were wearing these polyester suits, all started laughing as he laughed at his own joke, which he did quite often, and shrugging their shoulders with laughter. Just He had that laughter <laughs> where he would. It synchronized his shoulder movements of laughing, and they all imitated him, so I was fortunate not to get punched out. And it was was fun doing that, but then seeing the people who were in charge made me feel that perhaps I'd be better off pursuing the impossible course of trying to be what I told my father at nine I wanted to be. And at 92, which I'm gonna be pretty soon, I'm still trying to be that, and I'm glad that I followed those career death wishes to the max and encourage everyone to do the same thing. If you feel you were put here to do something, do it. And whatever you do to pay your rent, do that too. And not to get discouraged and not to expect anything except the satisfaction that you get from trying to do a good job and the wonderful people that you meet and continue to meet on that journey if you stay that way.
1: I mean, it sounds like not only your willingness, uh, you know, you obviously had uh, a schooling in music and things like that, but you're very flexible and willing to uh, try different genres and, and walk between different uh, types of music and things like that. But it sounds like a big part of it was a social side of things as well that... Uh, you, I'm sure you had class, some of the greatest classical musician friends, and then Thelonious Monk and Charlie Parker you're hanging out with, and then Jack Kerouac and then Woody Guthrie, like you said, Bob Dylan, like all these various people. That uh, it seems like there, there's kind of a social thing that helps you get from gig to gig to gig as well, right? Is that is that is that true?
0: I think it's mostly trying to be open and not being pathologically jealous. Which, which is a, a common thing <laughs> that happens. With artists, And, yeah. and not becoming, allowing yourself, if you're lucky enough not to have to have a day job anymore, to become a big snob and figure now is your chance to really act like a swine because you're expected sometimes to be that way. And you can go down and, and join people in that outhouse if you wish to, but if you realize that there's a higher level... If you could somehow, without feeling superior or anything, try to still keep it for real and, and have friends, old friends and family and people, whether or not they're famous or successful or anything, but, but they just give you a good feeling. It's amazing how much you can continue to learn and develop. I was told by this wonderful uh, PhD that I knew, brilliant woman, she said, you know, you hang out with so many morons, I said, well, I said, I don't judge people by their education, their station, their economic situation, or their pigmentation. I said, I try to make a soul-to-soul connection with every single person that I meet. And she said, but you do that with everybody. And I said, well, what else is there? And basically, the answer is, I don't know, but it sure is not thinking of people called somebody's and So that's a sort of our illness in, in our society to an extent. And when I met Hondo Crouch, the mayor of Lueckenbach, Texas, population seven, or six, depending <laughs> on which sign you read, he had Lucanbach. it was a ghost town that he bought more like to hang out in, he was a fantastic far out guy. So he put down Lueckenbach, Texas, POP, P-O-P, six, and then underneath, Everybody is somebody in Lucenbach, and, and I love that. I said, man, that's the answer for everything and everywhere. And great mentors I had, like the Michi Metropolis, who later conducted the Philharmonic. When I got older, he invited me to come up one time and visit him. He got in this beautiful elevator at the place he was staying. with And and the, they had an elevator operator. And the elevator operator in this great South Philadelphia accent said, Maestro... I've got this piece I was writing, would you look at it? And he said, of course, show it to me. So <laughs> the guy took out of his elevator operator's beautiful uniform a great big piece of music, and it was a song with the chord changes and the lyrics. He said, stop the elevator. Well, you would think he was going to say, let me off, I don't want to talk to you, you nobody." Know you know, the he said, Let me study this. And he looked at it about four minutes. He said, very interesting harmony. And the way you set this phrase is very apropos and easy for the singer so you could hear the diction. He was giving the guy a whole PhD crash course critique of his song. And then he got off the elevator, and that was it. I said, wow. And, you know, you could see he actually cared about other people, and he saw the value and importance of creativity. Pretty remarkable, and he, you know, that was the last thing you'd expect from anybody.
1: Yeah, cre- creativity-wise, it's like, I understand your first, in- your main first instrument was French horn, is that correct? Oh, no, I, I, I
0: started off, my dad got me a bugle. Bugle.
1: <laughs> and
0: he had this big box, I said, wow, then he opened up the box, I know. I ripped it open. I saw all the you know cut up paper inside. Then I saw this shiny brass. I said, "Oh boy, it looked like a diamond." You know, just full of energy. So he picked it up and I was, going, blah, blah. I was honking away for about twenty minutes, but trying to play it. And then finally, he'd been in World War One, so he knew what the bugle sounded like, but he never played one yet. So then he gave it to me, and I went beep. I said, oh man, I got that big flash. Like, wow. So, when I went to the little school outside of Feasterville in a neighboring farm town, that now is all suburbs, but in the 1930s, it was still like farming communities in Southampton. Uh, they had instruments, and you were allowed during this is during the Depression to choose an instrument and take it home with you, if you can imagine that. And then come back to school so you could practice. So I saw that French horn and said, Oh man, is that beautiful. Lying in that, you know, with all those coils. I said, Man, that's. that's. So I picked it up, and it, in those days, the teachers were allowed to do that. Slap on my. Yeah. Slapped. That's already taken. You're assigned the trumpet. So I figured, Well, I guess I wasn't meant to be a French horn player. So I played the trumpet. Then I got braces on my teeth when I was a teenager, and I couldn't really fit that big mouthpiece on with that, you know, but the French horn, I could kind of sneak in with the braces, and the gal that I was crazy about was a really good horn player. To figure figured, well, if I could play second horn, I could sit next to her. So I sat there for two years. She was a wonderful player. And suddenly, being the French horn, I was kind of in the middle of the orchestra in terms of the range, and I could hear all the other stuff because when you're playing the trumpet, you're ready for your moment. Bam! And then you hit it, generally speaking. There I was like in a different, different I had a different role. So I really began to kind of develop, I guess you might say, a, a composerly way of looking and listening. And the horn helped me to hear what everybody else was doing. And I still still love the horn, and now my horn's taken apart, and I have to get it fixed, and I have to repractice and make a comeback number 240,000.
1: You studied with Gunther Schuller?
0: You know, I, I met Gunther, I was, I was playing in a bar in Germany at the Jazz Keller, and he came by on a rainy night, he just wrote it in his book before he passed away, and he heard me playing the horn that went in, and he said, my God, man, he said, you know, I played on Miles' record. I'm the first horn in the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. He said, I don't play jazz, but I love it. You should come to Manhattan School and study horn with me. He said, you're going to get out of the Army pretty soon. You get the GI Bill, come back. And I said, well, I'm getting discharged. I don't even know if I want to come back. I was So finally, about a year later, actually a little 16 months later, I did come back and studied horn with him, and one of the wonderful things was he said to me, you know, he said jazz at the Philharmonicas on tour, there's a guy you've got to meet John Lewis. He's was play he had played with Charlie Parker, and I knew him as a wonderful pianist. He said, You have to meet this John Lewis because he, he loves Bach and classical music and he's and he's also a wonderful imp- jazz player and very creative. I said, Oh, okay. So he they were playing in Rome and I had a furlough, so I went to Rome in my little PFC uniform and I went backstage and it was real dark. So I was trying to find my way into the dressing room and I saw a silhouette of this figure. I had no idea, you know. So I said, Dova si trova John Lewis, por favor. Where how do I find John Lewis, if you please? This person I saw a hand stretch out and say I don't speak no I, Italian, honey. y Sp- e Italian. Um, Ella. I said what? And it was Ella Fitzgerald. That's the way she greeted a little soldier looking for somebody else. <laughs> 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 and she was so nice. Wow. And then she said, "Oh, what are you doing? Why do you, why do you want to see him?" And then I told her. She said, "Oh, that's nice." And then she told me about when she was growing up and knowing people that wanted to play, and she was just the greatest. And and I met so many people like that, and like Metropolis, that when I saw a lot of people that weren't like that, I had already an option and, and a desire maybe to be like those people someday. And I'm still trying to be that more and more and realize the importance of it. And I only say that not to disparage any political leaders. I won't even mention their names and ruin your afternoon. But you know... Some people who who represent the full greed ahead and super swindles, that's an overcrowded field in the non-growth industry and not rewarding. And most of the people you meet like that make you sick to the stomach and they're not very happy themselves and their children are all messed up. So therefore, it is possible to be human and try to act more that way. And when you're brought up on a farm and you see how, how sometimes animals are nice to each other If they're treated well, (laughs) you realize there is a certain principle. And if you get too far away from that and guard yourself off into allowing yourself to be ghettoized by a desire to be overprivileged so that you don't have to deal with people on a human level, it's going to come back and mess you up for good.
1: Like many many years later, it's I see that there's more composition credits for you. Some in the 70s, like some TV movies or documentaries, and then even more recently, 2013, I think. Isn't it delicious? Were you still composing for film and? I stuff? saw
0: the film. Well, I I was asked by Michael Kelly, who's a wonderful editor, to do that, and I saw the film. I said, "Man, this is this is an amazing story, amazing film." wow, I liked I liked it. I, and I still like it. And I loved working on it because it was so interesting. And I was asked. I've been asked to do a lot of things that I've said no to. I worked with Barbara Koppel on a wonderful documentary filmmaker. She did a, a film about refugees or exiles, I guess, from Iraq who had come over and couldn't get in the United States. So they went to Canada and how they they, they had their kids go to this old Canadian summer camp to try to get into this whole world and just showing how much the families loved those kids and how the struggle was to keep the old ways, to keep that old family and also be Canadians and be in the modern world, as we call it. And it was fascinating and a beautifully made film. And I remember one scene, I wrote some music and I thought, boy, this is, oh man, is that beautiful. And then I looked out and I saw her just sitting there very solemn and I said, Barbara, was, was that okay? She said, well, it was a wonderful piece of music and it was very warm and sentimental, but I really wanted it to be saying something else. Oh, first I said, man, how can, then I said, wait a minute. She's like the composer of the symphony. I'm her oboe player, I'm part of something else. She's a great filmmaker, great friend, and a great person. I better skip all that and do something else. So I did something else. And then I realized, of course, I watched the whole film again. What I did made me feel good, but it wasn't helping out for what she needed. So I I said, Barbara, you know, I looked at what I did and listened to it and saw the whole film again. And I realized that what I did was not helpful at all she said well i'm glad you feel that way because i worked on that scene for a year (laughs) so she really cared and i don't know she that probably like her 15th or 20th film she's someone that still loves what she's doing still cares and still knocks herself out to keep up those high standards that no one would expect from anybody and certainly, if, if you're renowned enough, you, you just slap your name on it, and it doesn't matter what it's like at all. Stravinsky was asked to do that, but he lived out there, because he liked the climate and everything, and he lived in Los Angeles. And he said he was asked to do this music for this film. And he said, I just couldn't do it. He said, I, I cannot pad your film with any music. So then they said, well, Mr. Stravinsky, suppose we give you $50,000 and you put your name on it, but you don't write any of it. We have a lot of other people that could, ghostwriters that could do that." And he said, no. And I said, wow, what a guy. So after the main sharing candidate, when I was asked to do seven films in one year, this was 1962, and I was paying $85 a month rent, and I wasn't married, didn't have kids. I would have been a millionaire at the end of those. I said, I can't possibly write that much music and do a good job and do the other things that I, I really, what, they said, what else do you want to do? I said, well, I'm writing a sacred service for the Park Avenue Synagogue. They said, oh, really, and how much does that pay? I said, $500. And they looked at me like, this guy must be a real masochist. I said, no, I'm committed to doing that, and I, and I want to get it I started on it. I want to get it done, and I have some jazz gigs. So then, they kept nagging me, and I realized, if I were lucky, and I'd given up everything and followed what they suggested. If I were lucky in five years, I'd be the ghostwriter for the next David Amram when they got sick of me. So I gracefully thanked them, but said, you know, I I don't think I can, but maybe someday I can do something else if it's something where I feel I can make a contribution and do a good job. And every time I mentioned the word good job, I could see the nausea I was creating because they looked at me as if, oh yes, they said, well, that's why you have your ghost writers, your orchestrators, and your staff. I said, I don't use a ghostwriter or an orchestrator or a staff. I said, I'm a composer. I write my own music. Then they looked at me as if I were a sword maker. Why should someone sit in a room and do all that stuff when they're supposed to be out there at a party hustling for the next gig? So I understood that, and I didn't feel superior to anyone else and Alex North I loved his music and so many of the people that were really gifted amazing people but that wasn't something that I wanted to devote my entire life to and I, I enjoyed the films I did work on and I'm sure I'll do another one someday but I love the piece I've just written sending Jack Kerouac to music and having it being done at this festival and being at a rehearsal yesterday hearing these two, Mr. Fader and, a, and William Anderson, these incredible classical guitar players, and a wonderful singer, Elizabeth Farnham, who I'd never met. And I was sitting there just listening to three of them play. I said, man, thank God I stayed being a composer. I actually felt good listening to it. I said, boy, that, that, that's nice. I really felt something. And I said, wow. And then, of course, it wasn't me. It was them because these there's scratchings were on the paper. Was, I, I had done my job, and I was just trying to encourage them and make a few little suggestions. But it's just so wonderful to have that experience and feel that maybe you're making some tiny addition to that great gumbo that in New Orleans they feel is the basis of nutrition, where everyone puts their precious ingredient into it. And then when you partake from that, you're getting the best of everybody's life, work, cooking style experience. And you partake of that and you become neutrified. That's the way to go, or at least for me, for everybody. But but I wouldn't say for everybody because then you're being judgmental or telling people how they're supposed to feel. And that's just as wrong as when you're told, go shove it.
1: You got your, your start in the jazz world in Lionel Hampton's band, is that correct?
0: No, I was playing at a jam session in Paris, and he came to the session. And I could feel when he came in, I was so thrilled just to see him in person. He was so warm. I remember the whole room warmed up when he came in, just some kind of magical feeling. He said to me, he said, Hey, man, he said, I like that French horn. He said, Come on, I'm doing a session next week. So there was Cannonball's brother, Nat Adderley, and all these wonderful French musicians I'd been playing with. And I played on... on, Lionel Hampton's record. I didn't even know him until I met him at that jam session. The same thing with Mingus. I was my in New York Leonard Feather had also heard me playing in the same bar at the Jazz Keller. No, he came, Herbie, in Munich, and mentioned me in Downbeat. There's some kid in the army playing the horn, and I was so thrilled. I showed up to everyone in the barracks. Said I got in Downbeat magazine. That was in 1953, I think, or four, and. and he said, call me up when you get to New York, and sure enough, he said, come on, I'm coming to this party, come along. He said, I'm having one at my house, so I went there, and one of the guys I met was Dick Hyman, this phenomenal piano player, and he was already a phenomenal piano player then, and just a few months ago, I got to play with him for the first time at a concert in Florida. Boy, was that a thrill after admiring him all those years. Then we went to Birdland. He said, come with me with Birdland to hear Bud Powell. I said, oh, boy, I'd never met Bud Powell. And I went there with Bud Powell's trio, which was incredible. I mean, hearing him live, he could still play up a storm. And his bass player sort of (laughs) got out in front of Bud and was leading the whole band. I said, man, it was Charles Mingus. So I said, boy, who's that bass? He was like phenomenal. I said, that guy's really different. He said, no, that's, that's Mingus. So Mingus when they were done, walked over, because Leonard had been a friend to all of those musicians When the other critics thought they were all playing wrong stuff. And Leonard said, this is Dave Amram. He just came to New York. He plays jazz French horn, you know, a good player. Mingus gave me that deep stare and said, would you go on the road with me for $125 a week? And I said, well... I'm honored that you'd ask me, Mr. Mingus, but I'm going to Manhattan School of Music on the G.I. Bill. I'm just starting to study composition. He said, you'll learn more with me than you ever will in any school. So (laughs) I went to a rehearsal with George Barrow, and he said, hey, you're all right. So there I was my third week in New York playing with all these people I never even thought I'd get to meet. And that's where I met Thelonious Monk and Oscar Pettiford and other people, Miles, everybody, because of being his side man. And it was amazing. He he told me the, the first night, he said, just remember when you're up here, he said, this is like being a Carnegie Hall. And he said, no matter how ratty the joint, it doesn't matter. And they had one microphone that didn't work and an out-of-tune piano and people stoned out and nodding out and they had to beat up the customer, the manager to get paid. It, it was pretty funky place. But he was turning that into a temple of art and I loved playing with him and all the people that I met through playing with him and playing with them. And that's still something that's in my heart. And I try to pass on that good feeling anytime I see some young person or anybody to try to understand, you know, I'm no different than they are really, just been at it longer and and lucky. They've got so many, God, they got so many gifted players and, and not just in jazz, but in, in Latin music and in folkloric music. I play with the Red Dirt Rangers when I go to Okima and Tulsa. They're phenomenal. I just get so much out of that, just being with them. And this one guy, the leader, John Cooper, said to me, you know, David, he said, I was interviewed. We've been together, the Red Dirt Rangers, for 35 years. They said, how can you guys stand each other? (laughs) (laughs) And he said, we love each other. And then he said, the hippest thing of all, he said, to us, music is the boss. I said, wow, was that good to hear? A- and I get that feeling, regardless of the genre, anytime there's people getting together, it's like magic. And if you lose that, then you may as well pack it in.
1: How is it that you're, just, you're almost equally is, is known for the, the penny whistle and um, the, an instrument like that? Like, Whose idea is it to bring penny whistle into jazz?
0: Well I I don't I don't, I don't really know any more than when I was playing French horn no one was doing that and I just stumbled into that and I started doing it. and then it, when I started playing you know just with, with folk, it was much easier to play with folk musicians cuz the the horn just didn't fit into certain things especially the bluegrass and the fast things and that kind of stuff. So Dizzy said to me he said oh he said you you could, I want to hear you play those whistles man Everybody, I said oh okay <laughs> so I brought them so I did the thing that's it's on YouTube where I'm playing the two whistles. And everybody goes, ah! So after it was over, he looked very seriously at me and said, are you going to bring those whistles to the next gig? And I, said, I thought, he doesn't want to hear that corny summer camp entertainment stuff. I said, well, if, if you want me to, Diz, of course I will. And he said, people love that shit. <laughs> <laughs> but the way, way he said it, I understood that with all his sophistication he wanted the audience to have a good time
1: yeah
0: so he would do something that they figured was a few seconds of good time and then that was just like a little icing on the cake I still played the horn with him and and the percussion and everything on YouTube that they have up there Jerry Mulligan I were supposed to play Blue Monk with him and then Jerry couldn't stay <laughs> his wife was there and it was a one of those long concerts it was beautiful so jerry had already placed his. so he said i'm going back to the hotel man so he and his wife cut out and it was my turn so D- dizzy who was going to play the first piece with Jerry. said dave come on, on i them whistles so i played that one then we did the blue monk and the blue monk they, they just used that one thing of Dizzy's with, with the whistles. But it was so much fun just to be with him and to play with the folk musicians and back up. And I just enjoy doing it. I never never planned anything. It was just something I did for, for fun. And then it turned out to be something that, that even musicians like it. And then I got, over the years, I got better at it. But I never really. And there was, I was fortunate, just as the French horn, when I was playing jazz on the French horn, Julius Watkins and I were the only guys who had our own bands, and we didn't know each other until I came to New York in 55, and then we played with Oscar Pettiford's band together and recorded with him and made a few records, but doing stuff together. But he was so amazing. And, and now there's a whole bunch of people playing jazz French horn, and the piece that I wrote, Blues for Monk for Unaccompanied Horn, they're doing it at that ch- at chamber music festival, the former first horn player, Phil Myers is going to play it.
1: He's part of it, right. I saw and that. the
0: other, other guy who's playing, Howard Wall, who's an incredible horn player, he and Phil are playing a Gunther Schuller duet, which is kind of amazing. You know, in the middle of this festival for the village trip, we're going uptown to it, and Elmira Davarova, the first woman concertmaster in the Met ever, is is the president of the New Chamber of Music and New York Chamber Society and does so many different things. I'm just fortunate, very fortunate, that some of the musicians like what I write and want to do it. And that's almost unheard of and very grateful for that. And most of the older composers that we know about always were great hangoutologists and also in touch with musicians and realize that the composer is just the first step. You know, if you're putting something down on paper, there's already a lot of great stuff on paper. So, if you're going to get the musicians to want to do it and like it so that they can take that as a map quest and then express themselves in their own personal journey, the listener will have something to listen to not just someone suffering saying I should have been a lab technician I got to play through this crap so they can get a a 10-year a, a and uh, you know they already can play up a storm and there's already a whole bunch of fantastic music written so Leonard Bernstein gave me the best advice of all when he was comp- he said you're the composer in residence with the New York Philharmonic the very first one and I said yes and he said just remember, your job is not only to please yourself, it's to contribute something to the repertoire. And in 1966, when you were supposed to set the piano on fire and then, and then shove it out the window <laughs> and pee on the stage in order to get a good review from the New York Times saying that you don't like American foreign policy, there was all this freakatissimo-style stuff going on because people figured that was the way to be hot to, to protest the war I went to jail protesting the war for one night but that was on a classical concert that was a thing where we all went down to the halls of Congress and got arrested that was a different thing one is not necessarily related to the other so I think the the composers trapped there was a famous cellist who played but never could get a gig and then she finally you know wanted to play in Broadway shows but she, you know a lot of great cellists out there and she wanted to play in Broadway shows, but you know there are too many other people with super chops that could do all that stuff. So someone said, "Do you think she should go to jail?" I said, "No, she should go to Juilliard, because <laughs> you know, <laughs> you got there are standards, and, and they apply to everybody. You have to understand that cheap, trash publicity is fine, but." That goes in the garbage can just along with the good reviews, so you really have to do something of more value than being the... Andy Warhol said everyone gets famous for 15 minutes, but he's referring to people that do get famous for 15 minutes, and then that has nothing to do with anything. That's a whole different Philistine approach and implies that there are no values, there are no standards. And the amazing thing is that people... And the central nervous system, the DNA grows up and each person is a new person. Pete Hamill said it best of all. I said, How do you what advice do you give to the writers? He said, Read. And read the classics. He said, Wow, what? He was like in the seventies then. He said, Madame Bovary is a brand new book until you open it up. I said, Wow, what a what a guy with all he's done. Instead of giving a whole lot of gibberish or name dropping, he was just telling everybody, "Hey, you want to do it? Get down with the basics. Learn your stuff."
1: So, with in with music, you would say, "Listen, right?" <laughs> exactly. They go, go, listen to the original greats and the oh, that's, that's master what, recordings. They and
0: they said to Duke, "They said, Duke, what what advice do you give to young musicians?" He said, "Listen." That was all he said. They're waiting. He said, what? Anything else? No. He said, listen.
1: When you got the film gigs, did you go and listen, like study Alex North or Alfred Newman, any of those kind of no, golden I, I, age composers? You probably don't have time, right? You're just thrown no, into. I, it.
0: I wasn't trying to write movie music. I was trying to write music for that movie.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: I, I didn't yeah. I never thought about that stuff at all. Yeah. And I guess that was, some people thought, well, when they want to put recordings out, the pe- recording people that I met said, It don't sound like movie music. <laughs> to me, oh, yeah. movie music. It's music for a film. Finally, the original orchestra version of *The Splendor in the Grass came out, I think, three or four years ago, when the guy in London put out a whole five-CD box set of all my stuff. And, and miraculously, even though he kind of went broke, that's getting played and and listened to and discovered now and the music for the manchurian candidate that took almost 50 years because it it didn't sound like movie music but i was fortunate the films were so good they got played enough times and over the years people have listened to it and i don't have to apologize because i put as much loving care into that as i do when i'm writing my new pieces and when I was sitting here, just in the same room I'm talking to you, working on this little piece I did for of, of setting Kerouac to with for two classical guitars and a singer, but a, you know a regular concert piece. Boy, sometimes I spend an hour just trying to figure out what note or what chord to put that would be appropriate. And I thought, well, maybe I'm getting senile or washed up. Then I realized I've been doing that all my life, <laughs> and everything was. Miles was asked why he didn't have Gil Evans for something that he'd done. He said, well, Gil's probably sitting there spending all day trying to figure out one measure. And sometimes it takes a while and a long time and a lot of wastebasket, <laughs> if you still do it by hand, to get it right. But ultimately, the hope is that when you're done, it will just sound natural. It'll sound like a, it'll be, be like a story. Not mm-hmm. one wasted word, not one wasted note. So the nice thing about composing is you have the option of making it appear, feel natural. makes the musicians feel something because they've got something to play. It's not just a crossword puzzle or a series like an obstacle course, which is a gift, you know. But something that's, that is harmonious and tells a story and, and has its structure and form. And you can do that, and then you use the brain part, but the heart and the instinct is something else, and you only develop that by following a certain path where you're surrounded on some level by stuff that's for real, and then that gives you the chance to make a better choice. And improvising and playing is also a wonderful way to keep in tune with musicians and with music. contrary to the idea of the author, the painter, the poet, being a miserable wretch, you know, completely. (laughs) It's it's miserable than enough trying to do it. (laughs) And living from day to day, that's enough misery already. People aren't supposed to, except for those that love victimology, are not supposed to be brought into the world of winology and blameology. There's plenty of that without... Art does. We've got enough of that stuff, and I think art of any kind is supposed to elevate the person who's watching it or seeing it and make them feel something. And that's very old-fashioned, but if it's been true for a few thousand years, maybe it's beyond being, being, being fashionable, being the fashion of the week. Thank God.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I implore listeners who made you know the uninitiated of David Amram, at least from the film side of things. You may you know maybe one place to start would be that five CD box set that you referred to earlier, um, that has some of your 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 highlights of your film music, most notably Manchurian Candidate, Splendor in the in the Grass, the arrangement. Uh, Young Savages. I think there's the Broadway on the waterfront on there, and then some of the uh, short films you did, and even some of the more recent stuff. So that's like a great place to start. But I think equally important is to check out No More Walls for you know for your your non film related music. Well,
0: the nice thing too is now that they're writing a new book called uh, 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 David by the Pearson, the English publisher Routledge is putting out my. First book, Vibrations, and my second book, Offbeat, Collaborating with Kerouac, and my third book, Upbeat, Nine Lives of a Musical Cat. I'm writing a fourth book for them, and they're putting out a book of people who've written essays about my music from from Woody D- Guthrie's daughter, Nora, up to uh, take something I did with Bert Elling on the just I happened to be there and someone recorded it And went, I made, where I'd made up a whole rap Malachi McCourt one, some guy from the wonderful writer from the New York Times some of the jazz critics two Native American great singer song singer educators Tolka uh, Eagle and, and Louis Moffsey of the Thunderbird dancers and Arturo O'Farrell the great composer, band leader. He now is at UCLA with, with the Afro-Cuban orchestra and teaching world music. And all, and people from, you know, universities and, and just amazing. And, and that book is going to have a lot of my symphony music and classical choral music and operatic music that people can also get with the magic of electronics by tuning in. And, and all of these things are there, and my hope is, all of that will encourage whoever's reading it when they're told, you suck, give it up, there's no market <laughs> for anything, the demographics prove you just a waste of time. They'll say, well, if that old guy's still having so much fun doing it, maybe I'll give it another two years anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if I could do that, then I've accomplished something. Because ultimately, the whole point of doing any of this artistic stuff is to inspire or foster creativity in others. That's what's so nice about Jack Kerouac. Now I see, as as hard as his life was, people I meet say, boy, you know, I never really got into reading books. I started reading his books, then I wanted to go out and do something in life and even read other books and write myself. And you find people sometimes get something where it makes them feel that they're worthy and they can do something. And that's the whole idea, I think, of what you're supposed to do, rather than Muhammad Ali said, I'm the greatest. Well, he was the greatest, but he always had that to sell boxing seats when you really got to know him a little bit. I did from playing with him with the American Indians and other things. He was like a very humble cat and very dedicated to what he believed. And extraordinary as a person, as well as an athlete, and so many people in so many fields that inspire people do that because they they're more than than uh, than just being you know a, a greedy statue. Frank McCourt, the wonderful writer, when I played the Cork Festival in in Ireland, right next door to uh, Cork, Limerick, where he came from, I, I said when I saw him and his brother Malachi. Because I used to play in Malachy's Bar. It was right across the street from where I lived in the, in the village. And I knew Frank when he was a high school teacher. We were going to write a mass together. He was an amazing guy. And uh, they said, how was it? I said, well, when they knew, I knew Malachy and Frank. They treated me like a king before I even played a note. And he, and, Fra- and Frank said, well, David, he said... They didn't think too much of the McCourts when we were going, living in Brooklyn and going back and forth to Ireland and just about starving to death. He said, after I wrote a number one hit book for three years on the bestseller list, the New York Times, became a millionaire. He said, then they suddenly had a different picture of what the McCourts were about. And I said, oh, and he said, and, you know, they called me recently and said, we're so proud of you, Frank. With your great success, we want to build a statue of you right downtown. I said, oh, man, what an honor. He said, no, I told him, no way. I said, what? How come? He said, I can't bear statues of any kind. And I said, well, why is that, Frank? And he said, because I hate pigeons. (laughs) (laughs) So it's kind of nice sometimes to know people of, of distinction and find out that they really have something to offer, besides being considered to be distinguished.
1: Well, I, yeah, I thank you so much for your time. I want want again I plug some of these events that are coming up. You know, because you you're busy, <laughs> as I mentioned at the top of all of this. That uh, uh, you're when I first got in touch with you back in May, you were busy. You have a little break. And that's why we're speaking right now. But then uh, it looks like from September on, you're back at it. Oh yeah. Um, and I guess you you have a, a great website, which is your name, DavidAmram.com. And if you go to it, you know if the listeners go to it, you can see all these events up up around New York City and out out of out of uh, the city as well, upstate and and down south and in Indianapolis, like we said. <laughs> So I don't know how you do it, but I'm glad you do it, and I'm, I'm happy to see that uh, uh, you're super, super busy and uh, still creating and still inspiring, you know.
0: Now I'm writing an unaccompanied piece for Elmira Dadovarova, this great violinist, and, and there she is playing this program, saying Brahms, Amram, and Kerouac, and she's doing it with the New York Chamber Music Festival and playing three of my pieces. and said, my God, and some of my favorite horn players of all time in the world, I said, boy, I better write a good piece. I said, whatever I've done, she's going to be playing something. Of and unaccompanied violin, I better write a good piece. So now that I've done my piece for the for the village trip and, and getting the details of that finished, I have to get the old guilt machine working and, and stay up at all hours sitting there fumbling and stumbling to write a good piece for her. So it never it never stops never
1: stops yeah
0: and and if you have a have a a goal of each time you're doing it trying to do your very best that kind of keeps you grounded
1: yeah so yeah september 10th the village trip festival and then september 14th is that new york chamber music festival at uh, christ and saint stephen's church
0: just amazing I, i'm so grateful to be able to be doing what i love to do and also to work with with musicians from the different genres when i played at the folk festival my gosh the whole guthrie family came out all their kids and grandkids and even the great granddaughters of serena and her her brother and krishna just fantastic Their arlo's son abe was like amazing and his kids are amazing and the whole family came out all the younger folks and they were honoring woody and some and two of woody's uh no, actually, his kids didn't come out. Nora and Arlo and Jody were all busy. But they were, it's just so nice to see. And they all played with me when I had my program. And I just mentioned he was the people from... He was the festival named after their grandfather, great-grandfather. But these were all wonderful musicians, and they were doing their own stuff. They weren't dressed up like Hammer or, or snubbing anybody because they weren't... You know, they were just wonderful. And they helped to set the tone... For everybody enjoying everyone else and they had some young magnificent musicians from tulsa playing and a wonderful thing for my son adam because he's such a good singer songwriter in his own right and player but he's also a wonderful drummer but he just plays congas with me because we have kevin twig who's a great drummer i've been playing with for years and they all have that same spirit as, as a lot of other young people i see who really love the music and if they have to have another job in between to support their music habit, they're not whining and saying America sucks, they don't appreciate the artists and all that crap. They're, you know, they understand everybody's out there struggling, but they still love doing it. And it's just nice to be around that. And I see so many people that are looking at it that way. I'm very encouraged for the future of the arts. I think. Small is beautiful and we begin to appreciate community and quality as the utmost rather than, can we do, if we get under 4 million, you're sunk. That's fine, but that's got nothing to do with anything except franchising and merchandising. And the Gettysburg Address wasn't delivered on HBO. That was done, you know, in in a railroad station. And when Plato was underneath that tree (laughs) Giving all that, or taking Socrates' information and writing it all down. That famous tree that's still there, supposedly the same tree in Athens. There were just a handful of people, and uh, when Moses delivered the Ten Commandments, he didn't do that at Yankee Stadium. It was just a small place, but a lot of the a lot of the things in the Sermon on the Mount also wasn't done at a franchise development. That you know some of the things that are still meaningful all these years later were done in very small places but they had large value and implications and I think it's that we were forced with the collapse of the of the music industry and the, and the gradual collapsing of the entertainment industry it's not collapsing it's just changing and a lot of people are with the indie stuff are doing it themselves and I think that's terrific Because then, if you're making a recording, you figure, well, since there's no (laughs) record stores, there's no industry left, it might as well be a document of the best I can do. And that's that's why they had the Gutenberg printing press, rather than everybody writing it out by hand each time, you got a printing press to do it. And that's why all this technological stuff was developed. So rather than making the technology the god, we can say, well, that's fine too. But the important thing is what the technology can do to communicate something of value. And and I think that's happening. And independent radio, you know, small stations now, they would, and when I was with RCA, they wouldn't go to any small stations. They would just, try to go to the big stations generally speaking period they thought there were 12 there were several hit makers but that was it everything else was just a complete loser now with all of that changing stations like the one that you have the wfmu which i listened to a long time and and thousands of other ones all over the country are meaningful because you can only speak to one person at a time anyway so we're beginning to change our picture and not allow our lives to be totally franchised by what's supposed to be the big time.
1: Right. Yeah. Just look at it as if you're you are speaking to one person. You have something to say and you're going to say it to, you know, just the handful of people that are in front of you. And if it has legs, it it'll have legs. If it doesn't well, you created your art, and hopefully it inspires one of those few people's, people that heard it or had a chance to be a part of it, right?
0: Sure. Well, that's, I think that's the idea, and the idea of trying to be a big mega schlock monster. That's okay for the creators of Frankenstein. But I don't <laughs> think that's got any, anything to do except one aspect of our amazing culture— which was P.T. Barnum, supposedly the world's greatest showman, who said, There's a sucker born every minute. <laughs> Idea that it's all a hype and you're just supposed to rip everybody off and get out of town before you get caught. That's fine, but there's something better and that lasts longer and is more rewarding than that. So I, j- I think j- gradually we're changing our dietary habits because we realize that people get the gout because they eat too much rich, greasy food, and then finally you become crippled by that. So if you're porking out too much and having an overwhelming diet of of greed and sloth, it's, it doesn't really neutralize at all. <laughs> good music, good art, good thought is always great. And for those of you listeners who say, well, All that great positive hot air was wonderful, but the demographics prove that's a complete waste of time because there's too much stuff that's been created. There's too much of that good stuff there already. There's no room for it. There's too much of it. We don't need any more. We have to remember there's never too many sunsets and never enough beauty, and I'll leave you with that.
1: Yes. (laughs) Amen. Well, again, yeah, thank you so much for your time, and listeners, go to davidamram.com, and please, if you can, if you're in the New York area, try to see some of these performances up and down the coast, coming up in September and October.
0: Well, Devin, I thank you too. I'm going to call up my daughter and tell her I had the pleasure of finally speaking to you. Wonderful.
1: Fun. (laughs) i revisited some of those films I hadn't seen in over 20 years, you know, and uh, it's great to hear it you know hear it all in context and kind of together like watching young savages into mentoring candidate and splendor in the in the grass and uh uh even i i didn't i didn't see all of it but i saw it years ago with the arrangement you know which is a pretty wild movie too but like the music just hearing it all come together it's like wow you know as cuz when you're watching movies you see a movie here you see a movie there and you don't necessarily put it all together as like one composer. You know, you're kind of thinking back, uh, looking at it, and then mm-hmm. having the opportunity to kind of put it all together. It's like it's like a little master class or something on film composing, <laughs> you know.
0: Well, I was just lucky. And and again, what Frankenheimer said, he said, the film will tell you what to do. So That's people did yeah. do that, I said, just watch it. Yeah. <laughs> or, or working in the theater or... You know, like they used to say in the Depression when you're going, they have these big railroads, but they, they couldn't build anything. Even They would just say, stop, look, and listen. That was the big sign. Yeah. And that's probably a good way to approach this about everything.
1: Just putting in, yeah, sitting there, and um, it, it will dictate what you need to do. But you do have to like put in the time and sit there and put in all the work and all that.
0: And then you got to work your can off to yeah. Take, yeah. To I mean, it's not it like easy. That. There's no, there's no shortcuts for that either.
1: Yeah, you have to, you there's have to no, do it. I don't think
0: there's any formula for for that.
1: For that, right? So yeah, if there was a button you could press, then you, you might hit it too too often. But I don't think there is that button for for the better things in life. So well, yeah. Thanks so much for your time and and
0: oh, my pleasure. And I wish you luck with what you're doing. Thank you for having me on your show, too.